0: Honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me.
1: But I remember feeling kind of
0: relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worse? I like to say it this way. Great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey, and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens, with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. We used to use the term "black sheep," that you were the bla- you could be the black sheep in the family, or that someone was the black sheep in the family. Um, and in the work that I do, we know that the the proper title for that is called identified patient. Now, what identified patient tends to mean is that there's someone in the family being treated like the patient of the family, and everybody else starts acting like nurses and doctors and therapists and uh, technicians and whoever this, this person needs. And what happens is that everybody starts to rotate around this person. They start to satellite this person. This person becomes the center of the universe of the family. And because everything's revolving around this person, people people then they'll do something wrong, they'll get angry at the person, that person will have a meltdown. And let me give you an example. Let's say you have a you have a daughter who's suicidal and you start being careful about what you're gonna say or what you're gonna talk about because you don't wanna trigger her. And you've, you've told your mother and, and your mother's obviously talked to your father and your, your, your sister knows. And, and so her, your daughter's aunt and uncle both know that uh, she's struggling with depression and anxiety and the school knows and the, you know, the neighbors know because their kids are friends with your kids. And pretty soon everybody everybody's kind of looking at this person a certain way and everybody's feeling a certain way about the, this patient. This this kid who has suddenly become a patient of a family, and no one's really qualified to be the doctor or the therapist. Um, but certainly, we're doing this because we're trying to be careful. We're trying to give extra attention. We're trying to give special notice to, and we end up walking on eggshells around this person. And that's that. That comes with its own set of problems. But honestly, that's not what today's show is about. Today's show is about everybody else. Today's show is about what it's like when a family member is mentally ill or when a family member is a drug addict or when a family member is really struggling with with depression or anxiety. And What happens to the kids who aren't? What happens to the family members who lose out on connection and time because someone in the family needs special attention? What is it like being in a family when you're not the kid with special needs? My guest today currently is living in Frankfurt. Her name is Val. And she and I connected on Facebook after attending a seminar together. And she, I don't know much about her story, but what I know is that she had a sibling who struggled with mental illness. And I asked her to come on and share her story and just want to talk to one of the other kids. Today's show is titled, I'm Hurting Too. My guest today is Val. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Val, thank you so much. I know we're in total time difference. It's 11 o'clock where I am. What time is it where you are?
1: Good afternoon. Good morning to you, Iron. Good evening. Here it's 7 o'clock. Thank you very much for having me with you.
0: It's my pleasure. Uh, let's, let's jump right in because I think this is a powerful experience because I usually end up talking to the parents or I usually end up talking to the therapists or the professionals or I usually end up talking to the person themselves who've struggled with, with uh, mental illness or special needs. Um, but you're coming to this from a different angle.
1: Yes. Totally. And thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to speak about it. My little brother, my younger brother, has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And um, yes, the question is really how how do you deal with it? Because as you said, um, when this kind of things happen, you know that's not about you. And you, you want to take yourself back you know, and a back and... Then sometimes you suffer in silence, and you you try to keep your tears, and you you just tell yourself that everything is gonna be all right, but then you know that nothing actually is all right. And um, for me, the difficulty has been that I've always been really really close to my little brother, and um, that all of a sudden I didn't know how to to react with somebody who is there physically, but no longer there, you cannot connect to him. You know, when, when you lose a sibling, you have an opportunity. I mean, it's terrible, but you, you can grieve upon it. But when your sibling is still there, but you cannot connect with him, it's very difficult. And in the family as well, you are not supposed to talk about it. Um, because depending on the cultures as well, it's a bit like losing your face and things are kept a little bit under the carpet. So you just end up trying to do it, to make it up with yourself.
0: Let me ask a few questions. The uh, first the thing for, for, for people who are not um, 100% uh, clear on what schizophrenia is, this is one of the more serious mental disorders. In where people uh, really have a different interpretation of reality, it's it's an abnormal interpretation. Um, there's hallucinations, there's uh, disordered thinking, and it's a, it's it's extremely disordered thinking, and it it impairs daily function. Um, the uh, the hallucinations, de- delusions, uh, it it's this is disabling. This is not a uh, uh, there there are people with who 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 have schizophrenia, who can function at times, but at other, other times it's incapacitating, and it becomes incapacitating for the family how old i, I get before I ask how bad it got, I want to ask how old were you um when you started noticing things and your family said okay we need to we need to go get help
1: I would say that was. I was maybe in my end 20s, early 30s. My brother was a little bit different and a bit weird. And sometimes he was, you know, telling me stories that we had to be careful and that um, we needed to shut the phones down. Or that, um, yeah, you know, I needed to be careful with my friends. But I was thinking like, okay, there's a lot of conspiracy theories going on as well. And maybe, you know, who knows, maybe he has friends who, who are like that. And initially, I was just like, oh, this is, this is a bit different from, from what it used to be. And it really came rampant and gradually. But that was like in my early 30s. So that was like nearly 10 years ago. Up to one day before it really, really got very bad that we were sitting together in the car and he was driving. And he nearly created an accident. Or we nearly basically had an accident because he saw that the person is after us, pursuing us, and that um, we cannot run away any longer because everybody has been after us, and the only way would be to eliminate that person by creating a car accident. So from something that was a bit weird to me, it became life-threatening. <laughs>
0: How old was your brother? It says, as I'm I'm looking at uh, some of the diagnostic criteria, it's saying that schizophrenic symptoms generally start in the early to mid-20s for for men. So, um, how old How old? I'm getting
1: goosebumps because, as you're mentioning this, because this is exactly what happened and we didn't realize it at the beginning. We thought that at some point in time, I was living in Mexico and my brother used to visit me and then he had a serious health issue and we thought like in terms of he had something called where he fall in coma so we thought that all this change in behavior were related to that incident that had happened in Mexico and initially we didn't realize that something was really really going wrong with him
0: did he have suicidal thoughts um often or was it was it when the uh, the paranoia the the paranoia that comes with schizophrenia got so bad that he had to he felt like he had to take someone out or take himself out of the game so that other people wouldn't be in danger
1: Well um he never really spoke about suicidal thoughts as such what happened is that when this incident happened in Mexico, I was the, fa- the one who found him and who brought him to the hospital. And many times afterwards, he told me, "Why? Why did you save my life? Why didn't you just let me die?" And I couldn't really relate to that. I was totally under shock because I was myself twice in a situation that I really heavily fought for my life. So I couldn't understand how, where he was coming from with this. Um, with this question and with this um way of thinking but i never really related that this could be suicidal i mean suicidal thoughts as such i was just like okay he's going through a tough time and um yeah he's perhaps feeling depressed right now but this is when he really started talking about it
0: did you did your family have uh, a history of schizophrenia? Was your grandfather schizophrenic? Anything like that?
1: Oh, not at all. Not at all. Did Did really your brother
0: crazy. use drugs? Was a, Did he use psychoactive or psychotropic drugs?
1: Not at all. And it you was... know, it was it was really hard because um, my brother was always considered. I was the black sheep in the family. My brother was considered being the shining star, like the boy you know who has the middle touch. Who yeah. He was working already in a bank as a consultant. So the brilliant boy, you know, and I was the terrible child. I was the problematic dad, actually. And we had no history. And also at the beginning when I was trying to, because I used to do crisis management. And when I did crisis management, I saw certain things. So at the very beginning, I didn't catch what was going on with my brother. But at some stage, I was like, oh, this requires attention. And when I was trying to talk about it to my parents, well, you know, it was very, very difficult to reach out. And my mother was for many, many years in denial up to telling me that um, I had to be kind to my brother. And if my brother was reacting this way, I was the, the elderly sister. So I had to be a good role model to him and to bring him, you know, gently back on his way but at that point in time i started realizing that this was way beyond my abilities to get this sorted out
0: did your your red alerts why do you think they went uh, ignored. How come when, when you're working crisis management and you're seeing, you're seeing behaviors that require management, you're seeing crisis behavior that requires management. This is literally your job description. Yes. Why, why do you think your parents had trouble listening to you? Why do you think it was so hard to get support for your brother?
1: Mm, I think maybe one part is, is a cultural, like um, I have mixed origins, so I'm half Italian, half North African. Um, also, we hold a French passport, but I think a part would be a cultural thing that you don't want to lose your face. Then I think the, the acceptance and the realization um from a child, which is meant to be, I mean, if it was me, you know, it was like, it was expected from me because from my childhood, I heard like, I would end up like my uncle being a drug addict and all this stuff. But so from my brother, it was like this prodigious, prodigious, (laughs) how do you pronounce it, star. So I think it was like, there was no way. And um, yeah, I think there was a lot of, of denial. Um, at first and perhaps um, Feeling helpless as well and feeling overwhelmed, you know Because for me a lot of things perhaps based on my crisis management background We were always told to take the helicopter view. I think that for me I was just seeing this even though it was my brother, but I was just seeing this as another job Okay And being of service to my family, you know what I mean?
0: Now you you use the term and I want to say you use the term saving face? Yes. Does that mean your family was embarrassed?
1: We don't talk and that's one of the challenges. We don't talk openly in my family. And I believe that when you don't have honest conversations this is when you know when taboos and when 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 you have hidden agendas this is when when things can go ugly. So I think that, um, yes, there is perhaps a, a certain embarrassment and also not knowing how to go about it, not knowing what to say to other family members. And um, yeah, just just that kind of, of attitude like, oh, that's going to get sorted out. But what I've learned in my life is that it really seems get sorted out by themselves, you know, if you don't take action, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And now we have the situation, like three years ago, we had the situation that my brother was talking to walls, and sometimes just laughing, then shouting, then breaking mirrors. And I remember I was um, going to a conference to Paris, and I was telling my mother, "Look, mother, I mean, there is something. And my mother was still telling me, you know, he does that to provocate you." And he does that just to to annoy you. And it was very, very difficult for me to deal with that because I felt like, you know, it's, there is a person in danger and you just you don't assist her. And for me as well, one of my biggest concerns was like back then. I didn't know whether it's really um, just, I mean, it's already enough, but is it a mental illness or is there maybe a physical ailment that is, you know, as well there and that is perhaps causing that mental illness. And I was, the last thing I wanted was my brother to suffer physically because I saw that it's already enough for him to suffer mentally, you know. And I'm sure like, even, you know, if for us, we, we don't get into his world, but I have sent him many times. I have written him letters, just hoping that even if he's not able to read the letter, um, you know, and to understand the letter in full, but to feel the energy. And the love I have for him. So that he knows that he's not alone. Because like for long, he was like hidden. And I think this is is ugly.
0: Where is he now?
1: The challenge is that apparently in France, mm, the laws are as such as either he will um, agree to be treated and then he can be treated in a normal way. Or he will be treated like by force. The police will come and the firemen will come. And then he's just gonna be put in a a closed place where even my family can't access him. And I was just discussing this a few days ago with my mother and I was like, this is ridiculous. I was like, there must be a different way because this child is always scared to be um, pursued you know he's always scared that so how is he and he sleeps now most of the time and he doesn't even cut his nails anymore because he's scared that you know somebody will take I mean it's crazy that somebody will take part of his nail and check his DNA and manipulate something or I mean I don't know that he has whoa, It's so wild what's going on and um and I said, you know, you cannot, you cannot expect from a child who is completely in panic, who is completely terrorized, who already refused even to see family members, to accept to go from his own free will to see a doctor. I mean, this is crazy. And so what I've tried doing is I made some connection a while ago with a gentleman in Canada. So I've tried to connect my mother with this gentleman. If there is a way or if there is a gray margin in the law so that we can help my brother. Because for me, you cannot let him like that, you know? I mean, it's... um, And I'm willing, you know, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And when he's going to be treated, I'm even willing to travel to see him if that's possible and if that's what he wishes, you know?
0: It's interesting. So far, we've been on our call now for about 18 minutes. And I'm guilty of this too. You're guilty of it. But we haven't talked about how you're doing. We haven't talked about how your, your mom's doing. How's your mental health? How's your mom's mental health? You're, you're, you're talking about a level of mental illness, that a lot of parents I work with are very scared about. They're very scared of their kids getting to the point where they're yelling at walls and laughing out loud and trying to cause a car accident because they're seeing and hearing and they won't cut their nails because they think someone's going to steal their DNA. And I understand that because I work in a mental health facility. Hmm. But let's get back to the point of this call. How are you?
1: Thank you for yeah for remembering and for bringing that back to me. Um, there are days that I cope very well with it because maybe that's my spiritual side and um, I I trust I have faith I I talk to God and I know that this is an obstacle and that it's we will get through it and we'll get stronger but there are days that it's very very challenging for me because as i mentioned at the very beginning i miss him i miss having the conversation with him he used to be such a fu- I mean yeah he used to be such a funny guy and and i miss the jokes and it's what i said earlier it's you have somebody physically but that person is no longer it's a weird situation it's like that person is somehow in your life but somehow no longer in your life and we used to do a lot of things together we used to travel a lot we used to yeah have a lot of experiences adventures as well and with friends and not many of my friends like Sometimes they do ask how he is, and I want to talk openly about it. And then, I promise you, Aaron, they don't ask a second time. And for me, I feel like, you know, he's being forgotten, and so it, it's hurting me. It's hurting me.
0: So what do you do about that hurt? How, how do, you, do you go to therapy? Do you seek support from people who are willing to have the conversation more than once?
1: Mm. I will do my next speech in Toastmaster on August 1st about it. It's called Having an Honest Conversation. I will talk about what it means uh, and why I believe that, um, yeah, we should, we should have honest conversations and no, no um, longer consider this as a social taboo and break a stigma. Um, I journal a lot. I have found a technique through a friend of mine that helps me to deal with my emotions. Like, for example, when I feel that I want to cry about it, I will, I will allow myself to cry and then I will sit down and I will write, like, a part of me is feeling sad because a part of me is feeling angry because... part of me so i will go through all my emotions and then i will try to connect with the part of me that is the most accessible in that time um no i don't go in therapy I, i don't um because i have found it very very difficult here for me i have had some experiences to go in therapy and I have found that very little understanding as well, that sometimes people are telling me, yeah, but you are not responsible for it and live your life. And they don't understand the pain that I have in me and what it means to deal with such a situation. And for me as well, not to be able to talk about it within my family. Does
0: does it help to be able to talk about it, like on this podcast or at Toastmasters or something like that?
1: I think so. I think so. Because for me, one of the, the messages that, that I really want to convey is that it can happen to anybody, to really anybody. And it's when it happens, it doesn't happen only to the person, but it happens to the whole family. And that the challenge that is being faced right now in France because of this law... And it's something for me that, that has to do with the society, that how, how we perceive this. And so I think talking about it is my way of perhaps changing things in small steps, one step at a time. And yeah. I have learned as well, I used to keep everything inside of me, but I've learned as well that when you have the courage to express yourself, sometimes you it reaches out to people and then other people who face the same situation will open up and then maybe you find new buddies, you know, and you can talk about it and you can share experiences and help each other.
0: In Al-Anon and AA and NA in recovery programs and in ours as well, we have a saying that we pass on to parents and the kids We say a family is only as sick as its secrets. And as you're talking, I can't help to think that, and and you're talking about a cultural thing too. You're not just talking about your family. You're talking about a cultural experience that the, the sickness is not that everybody's got the illness. The sickness is that everybody is dealing with the illness and no one's talking about it. No one's getting the help that they need. I can say that in America, it's, it's much more acceptable to go get therapy. That's something that that is very common for us. That's something that uh, there's a lot of therapists, there's a lot of uh, people who use therapists. And when your kids are struggling, when you have a family member that's really struggling with mental illness or any type of dysfunction uh, that's causing pain and suffering, getting therapy about it is not so, uh, it's not looked down upon. However, it's very expensive. Insurance companies don't want to financially support it. So, let's say you and your family, let's say you and your mother, decide to go talk to someone about this. In Europe, does the healthcare system allow to for this, or do you have to pay for this out of your own pocket, or is this something that's covered?
1: No, um, at least in my case, I, I have a private insurance. And I know that I would require to go to get an assessment, but normally I would get a minimum amount of sessions paid and covered. And as far as I know, in France, the governmental um, health insurance would take care of it. I think it's really more... um, I was thinking while you were talking about it because I... I follow a lot what happened in the U S and actually I learn a lot from the U S and I think it's much more the taboo that you think that when you go like they say, you know, like that, when you go to a shrink, there is something wrong with you and they don't realize that as I have a leg, I have a soul and I have a brain. Right. And when I have a toothache, I go to the dentist. Why if I, have a pain in my brain or in my soul or in my heart, I mean, except for going to the cardiologist. Why don't I go for the proper doctor? Mental health, to me, is not something that should be considered as, as dark, you know, as something that you don't want to touch. It's part of the health. To me, if you want to be healthy, it has to be physically, emotionally, mentally. That's, to me, being in optimum health.
0: Well, I, I 100% agree, and I think that's where the, the stigma is changing, um, at least here, and it's for some, there, there are some subcultures here in the U.S. that still struggle with it, and certainly the older generation, um, you know, the baby boomer generation still has this idea that, you know, you just got to be mentally strong and pull up by your bootstraps, but it, the, the moment they feel a pain in their leg, they're off to see the doctor. And you're right, you know, that that when your heart hurts, there's a doctor for that. And when, you're, when your brain's not working, there's a doctor for that. Um, when you, when there's something going on with your soul, there's there's support, there's help. So what about your mother? How are you – do you look at this family member and say – okay, well, I guess they're stuck in their way, so I just got to take care of me. Are you still trying to rope her into getting support?
1: That's been, thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak about that. That's been a long journey. I mean, I've gone through a whole range of emotions from writing her letters, being super angry at her, then trying to understand her her point of view being compassionate with her and then the workshop that you mentioned played at the beginning of our conversation played a big part as well for me in trying to open my heart more towards her have more compassion but at the same time get things going and i also found the courage to speak up towards her and to really tell her, you know, um, with all respect, this is what I feel. This is how I feel right now. And by you doing that in relation to my brother, but also towards me, um, I feel not heard. I feel not seen. I feel disrespected. And my mother has this tendency to withdraw. Um, and she will just ignore my messages, my letters, everything. And then usually she will call me a couple of days or sometimes even weeks later, uh, as if nothing have had, had happened. And in the past, I would just accept it. And now I don't accept it. I am more assertive. I, I confront her with things in a very respectful and loving manner. But I don't allow this to go under the rug. This, is, this is
0: what here. I mean yeah. when, I, when I say that um, it begins, how this type of thing can, have, can affect the whole family. If, if two people, and I see this with parents constantly, if two people don't share the same view about treatment, care, conversation, support for someone else in the family. Suddenly, the entire system breaks down. And what we know is that when mental health issues take place, the system must be strong because your brother's system is dysfunctional. That is, that's, that's, that's a nice way to say what's going on in his brain chemically, what's going on in him emotionally. His system has broken down. His brain is failing him in a way that's allowing him to exist with the rest of us, with the way we do the work. And for him to have the type of help and support that he needs, not only do mom and daughter have to agree, but the government has to agree and the healthcare system has to agree. And the neighbors have to agree and the police have to agree. Everybody's got to find a way to at least some sort of common ground.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's, if, if one person's off, the whole system can break down, and that that really contributes to the feeling of helplessness.
1: Absolutely, thank you, Aaron, for pointing that out, and for also I really appreciate our conversation because it's giving me so much strength right now. And one of the things maybe that I would like to add, because you brought it to an extended environment, but one thing that I have observed as well, which can be highly, in my opinion, detrimental and damaging or some support organization. Like at some point in time, I managed to get my mother to contact a support organization. I mean, I didn't get, give her the address. She figured out it on her own. And then she, I don't know what happened, but apparently the, the conversations were so horrible that she, she got completely stuck and I felt like drawn back a hundred years and that all the work I had done <laughs> was kind of demolished in one conversation. And apparently the support organization, sometimes I do, I, I can appreciate that there is a lot of pain also within other families share, uh, I mean, um, with what is going on. But I think just to share and to amplify the pain is not helping, It's not helping those family members who are seeking help and is not helping those who are affected I, I hope i express myself clearly i mean it's easy to follow what i'm trying to say no, no
0: you're you're very easy to understand and and what i'm getting from what you're saying is a lot of what i heard people hear people when they talk about having an experience with a therapist or experience with a church or experience going into the 12-step programs like aa or na is that they go in and the experience, the healing experience, um, this, this thing that they tried, didn't work.
1: Yeah, was traumatized.
0: Well, you know? I'm, I, without a doubt, without a doubt, you know, in the 12 steps in AA and NA, which is the most popular way to deal with alcoholism and drug addiction. It is, it, is, it is one of the most popular ways to do it because it's free, because it has a long history of being able to help people, because it creates incredible support communities. But there is a term called the 13th step because there's the 12 steps, but there's also the 13th step. And that's where uh, men try to pick up women at, who are very vulnerable in an extremely vulnerable state and have a very uh, a short-term physical relationship with the person, which makes it worse. And you know as well as I do, and, and I and I have to say, Val, I think you said it earlier, you said you had a bad experience with a therapist. And I. there are hundreds of thousands of therapists out there. There are hundreds of support networks out there. And at some point, if we say, well, I went to that group and it was so bad. Does that mean that the treatment's bad? Does that mean that the healing's bad? Does that mean that that group was bad and you've just got to find yourself another group? Does that mean that therapist was bad and you've got to find another therapist and you keep searching until one works?
1: Exactly. But
0: we do see it often, especially working as a, as a treatment center. If somebody has a bad experience in a treatment center, Suddenly, all treatment centers are bad. And that's just simply not the truth. But it's trauma on top of trauma. I have no doubt. And I and listening to the pain in your voice when you talk about your mother, I have no doubt that your mother is in tremendous pain. I am sure this woman has cried herself to sleep and cried herself awake, just mourning the loss of her son and the strangled relationship with her daughter. And yet, at some point, we have to realize that what we do, what we're doing, what's happening, is not helping. We're still sick. The family is still sick, and it takes a, it takes a it takes a big healing. This is tough. This feels talking with you, and I know parents and teachers and who uh, are, are going to listen to this, and I want to remind the therapists and the counselors who listen to this program this is what we're talking about when it feels like our clients are in a no-win situation. They've had a shitty experience with a, with a former therapist. Their home life is coming apart because people are disagreeing on how treatment goes. They've, uh, uh, they've lost a family member. Their entire life is centered around someone who is dysfunctional, not sick, and thinking abnormally. And then we're asking them to do what? Give up their current paradigm? that's that's, To a brain in crisis, everything looks like a threat. So I can imagine to your mom whose brain is in total crisis, feels like anything could make this work. Everything will make this worse.
1: Yeah. And I have as well in all fairness to say that for my mother, uh, I think she's completely overwhelmed because she's from a different generation, a different culture. She's taking care of my dad who has Parkinson as well, so it kind of she's carrying it all alone because my dad is in his own little world when it comes to my brother and I can understand that for her it's very very challenging.
0: Well look, let's, let's just be purely honest. There are very few people in the world who are qualified to deal with someone like your brother.
1: Yeah. And I can appreciate also we have different personality, maybe from me due to my background and what I've been through in the past years. And this kind of, we're not gonna give it up. If we have to make a thousand phone calls, if we have to go through Canada to get back to France to get the solution, we are gonna do that. But at the same time, it's exhausting. I mean, I have to admit as well that because you asked me how I feel, that especially in my case, I have to look after myself because I'm just coming out through seven years of a heavy medical (laughs) problems. I had this um, rare cancer disease and I'm still partially in treatment. So my resources are also kind of tied up there. And yet I want to help my brother and I want to invest as much time and effort and energy that i have to get this moved forward but sometimes i just feel myself as well that i reach my limits that i reach my limit because you asked as well um our our podcast is about i heard too and is that i really reach my my limits physically and emotionally to go into that battle as well
0: So. I'm noticing another interesting thing as we're coming around to the end of, uh, of the podcast here. I'm noticing another interesting thing. We've, we've, I've asked how, how, how do you feel? Yeah. You, you've talked about a lot of things, yeah. but you haven't actually used any feeling words. No, you've you you you've talked about how hard you're willing to work and willing to do whatever it takes. You're talking about that you've been struggling with cancer in the last seven years. You've talked about, you know, your, your mom's dealing with your dad who has Parkinson's and, um, you know, she's from a different generation. Val, how do you feel?
1: I feel... sad. I feel hope as well. I feel angry sometimes. Angry for not being able to do something, for just seeing his life in front of my eyes, just falling apart. I feel alone sometimes, alone because I would like to be able to open up and to talk about it and to have somebody just like you who genuinely asks me, how do you feel? not always have to put a mask on and to say, yeah, I'm strong, everything's gonna be okay. Because there is a part of me that still believes that everything's gonna be okay. But there is a part of me as well, sometimes I just want somebody to hug me and to tell me I can understand that you are sad about it.
0: I wish I was there to give you a hug because everything you've talked about, it's, it's, it's sad. This is, this is hard to listen to, this is, and no wonder we avoid talking about how we feel or talking about the situation that has caused these feelings because these feelings are hard, this sucks, Val. This is this sadness, this anger, this overwhelm, this loneliness, this, this is the part that everybody else deals with. The people who are mentally ill, they've got their own challenges, they've got their own intensity and struggles and dysfunctions and what you're feeling. And this is the great irony. What you're feeling is what everybody else who loves these people feel. Yeah. And, and you would think as a world we would be so much better at reaching out to each other, reaching across the distances, the voids. We have the, the library of Alexandria is on our desk. It's in our pockets. We have the sum total of human knowledge in a phone. And we have the ability to communicate like you and I across continents and people still end up, Completely alone, and we know that trauma takes place in isolation, and healing takes place in community. And I, I think that you're on track for your healing. But honestly, in my, in my professional opinion, in my amateur opinion, opinion, in my amateurly professional opinion, you're gonna start standing up on stage and make as much noise about this and tell everybody your story, because. The amount of people who have your same story, that's the part that's going to heal you. The first day I went to a 12-step meeting because I was a drug addict, somebody else stood up and told my story. Their life looked just like mine. And I realized in one moment, I wasn't alone. And that's when my healing began, It's when the secret died. And I'm so sorry your brother's going through this but this cannot be your secret to bear anymore. It's killing you. It's killing your family. And he's, he, can't, he can't assist with the healing of your family. He's got his own demons, his own dragons, his own battle to fight. I don't, Val, thank you so much. This, this, was, this is an intense episode. This is tough. And I, I know that, that the parents listening to this podcast are dealing with this. You have put into words what all of my podcast listeners are dealing with. It's why they listen to this podcast: is that they're looking for help because they feel alone. And you, you have been the one who has stood up and say, "I feel sad. I feel angry. I feel alone." So thank you for the amount of courage you showed today,
1: Aaron. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be a guest on your podcast to have this. Hard, sad, tough conversation, but beautiful conversation as well with you. Thank you.
0: Stay on the line with me for a second while I sign off. Okay, Val? I, I hope that, I hope this lands. Because, folks, you know what I'm going to say next. Because I say it at the end of every single show. This is why you have to take care of yourself first. And you take care of your adult relationship second. And then you take care of your children, because in that way, we do our best work for our kids. This is why taking care of ourselves and taking care of our adult relationships. This means that you're exercising, you're eating right, you're, you're, you're doing something for you because you have spent so much time giving to these people in your life who are struggling. You have to give to you, and you have to start to nurture these adult relationships. And I'm not just talking about the marriage. I'm talking about your friendships. I'm talking about support groups. I'm talking about the other adults in your life, your connection, your tribe, your clan, your community. And when we fulfill those two needs, connection, freedom, power, safety, control when we should when we fulfill those needs ourselves then we can really then and only then can we really look at to facilitate someone else's needs who are not being met to help someone else who's struggling so much as always i want to thank my boss goddess Kristen walker who's our who's the who's the the queen bee at mental health news radio for creating this dynamic platform uh, I want to thank my editor, Dan, for, for spending his time putting this uh, call together. And I want to thank my guest, Val, for coming on. Val, thank you so much. That was such an amazing, amazing conversation. Thank you for taking the time out of your evening to, to be with us here in America. All right, folks, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility. And also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com. Join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to MentalHealthNewsRadio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at Programs.com.